Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Hi, Victoria. You have a new picture. Nice. I keep changing. Yeah, we went, went out to sushi last night. Oh, nice. So it looks like a fun place. <laughs> it was good. We came out in a big sushi boat. <laughs> oh, really? It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Hi, Victoria. Oh, I said already. Hi, Victoria. I'm so sorry. I'm a little bit. Um, yeah, welcome everyone um, to the weekly recap. This is the room where um, if you missed any of our rooms during the week uh, with the guest speakers, or if you just want to have a quick reminder, that's what we do here, um, usually on Sundays at this time. Um, and then if you like what you hear, uh, uh, we don't, we just do a short version. Uh, then you can either, you know, go back to the full replays and listen to the whole story. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming. Hi, Jamie. How are you today? Hello, Katrina. Hello, Science Society. I am well today, thank you. Have you had a good day so far? Uh, yep. Uh, yep, yeah, I've unpacked a lot. Yeah, still a lot, but... Ha. <laughs> I showed how Serena close, my progress. You can ask Serena for grading. <laughs> she, I... <laughs> I've been I've been here a year. There's still stuff I haven't unpacked, and she's like got the whole house set up. It's crazy. Really? Wow! I am genuinely impressed. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't possibly. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm exhausted. How do you do it, Katerina? Are you using this renewable energy that some of our speakers have spoke about? Because you're not using the kind of fossil fuel consumption that I'm doing. <laughs> Well, you know, funny that you say that because Serena and I, we were talking yesterday when Science Society makes like a major event, we will of course get approached by designers like Valentino and so on, that they will make gowns for us for the castle. Um, <laughs> yes, event. absolutely. But Yeah, I'm going to ball down. Yeah, but our requirement is that it has to be made out of smart materials that while we walk, we create carbon capture through the friction. That's the oh, I love this. I love this idea. <laughs> the carbon capture through fashion. Yeah, the carbon negative ball gown. <laughs> this is going to be a thing. Um, yeah, in, in fact, put even the carbon capture at various places in the gown so it gets like, you know, does it get darker over time as it captures um, carbon? Would it change color? That would be really cool, right, Serena? Oh, yeah. It, uh, the it, more you it move. It fades to black. <laughs> yeah, so uh, implement that in the design then, right? So as it captures more and more, it's like creating this, uh, I don't know, a picture or a symbol or something, you know, or, or maybe not a symbol. Um, but yeah, no, I can see that working. I can see fashion people, designers going crazy on that. And then the cool thing is it motivates you to move and burn calories, right? Because you would ca capture more, so you get a higher score. Right, so oh, if yeah. you wear a ball gown, you're prepared to start dancing. 
get yep. catch that carbon. <laughs> see, if the, see if the environment's through now. <laughs> dancing. <laughs> so... One tango at a time. <laughs> Well, yeah, there could be. Valentino, if you guys are listening, that's our requirement for wearing a ball gown at our (laughs) They'll capture a niche market, the science folks and the carbon neutral folks. Absolutely. Maybe we we can can think about if they, um, they apply. For being our in-house designers, we can we can think about it if they come and come up with a solution. Like, anyways, joke aside, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's start with the recap again. Thank you everyone for coming, and I hope you know you enjoyed this last week with us. Um, so we had on Monday, Dr. Joyti Chatayi. Um, he is at the University of Strasbourg, a researcher, and he investigates the molecular mechanism of um, transcription-associated proteins contributes to our long-term memory. And he is in, currently he is in Ted Abel's lab at, um, and Ted Abel, he is the director of the um, Neuroscience Institute chair and uh, DEO Department of Neuroscience. So he's the senior scientist of this project. And um, yeah, if you look at the presentation uh, that he shared with us or he made for us, um, so what he was, um, so what he published um, was the molecular mechanisms of um, long-term memory. Uh, how long-term memory basically gets stored in the neurons and what goes wrong, especially in Alzheimer's disease and related dementia diseases. And it's a really interesting mechanism and very important to know this mechanism that basically crep binding proteins, uh, which is a very common mechanism, like it's a pretty... So whenever any um, major excitation goes on in neurons, uh, this crap um, gets activated and then genes will be expressed that basically will implement that um, activity in the neurons. And if they are strong enough, they will get stored long term. And he dissected out the really uh, detailed mechanism. He looked at it in different ways uh, through a lot of through gene expression mechanisms. And um, yeah, um, so if you look at the paper, um, he, um, he then later on looked at what the CBP pathway is like how the CBP pathway works. And then if there is a potential therapeutic target in uh, Alzheimer's disease mouse model. And um, he then saw that NR4A genes are progressively downregulated across increasing rates of um, Alzheimer's pathology. And um, he then used um, 
um, drug that targets this pathway and he could basically <clears throat> rescue the capability of memory consolidation. Uh, so this will have huge implications. The, the knowledge uh, he uh, gained uh, for neurodegenerative disorders. Um, I'm not sure if anyone has something to add um, for this part. Well, for, yeah, for one, this seemed like it was ages ago. I can't believe that was just Monday. But I, I was, um, I was curious that there, because I, I kind of thought that at more, you know, astrocytes were more involved. But he gave a complete neuron-only uh, mechanism. Uh, but it is, in terms of the signaling cascade, I think the astrocytes are involved upstream from that. But I wasn't sure. But this was cool. This these were in the hippocampus, right? So this is where the genetic expression is altered and the receptors are upregulated. But I did think there was astrocyte involvement in that. But, hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So they did this for the hippocampus, but he said that, um, you know, this um, NR4A pathway um, and is is not unique to hippocampus neurons and in the future it would be really interesting to look into more brain regions and um and he didn't study the astrocyte involvement but yeah he says that there is for sure a regulating uh, factor for from the astrocyte side uh, but you know he didn't he didn't study it yet, but it would be interesting in the future. I find it really interesting when he actually was talking about um, the spatial memory being located in the hippocampus, and that's where he was kind of working on, right? And it was, to me, it was um, mentioned a lot of things indicating, you know, why we find things like memory palaces and stuff so effective, why, you know, geog geographically remembering things is, is kind of easier for us because it's a common like held memory technique right um and uh, it made a lot of sense to me um when long-term memory and memory storage was happening in this place involving uh, spatial awareness um I found that incredibly interesting um and then hearing the um biology of what the you know the, the neuroscience to what was happening when memories were actually being consolidated uh, consolidated um, he had mentioned here that um, to convert a single memory trace of sensory information into stable long-term memory um, requires a post-experience process called consolidation, which to put it that way doesn't sound very impressive, like after you learn something you need a bit of time to sort of think on it. but. It was fascinating when the doctor was actually describing the actual uh, procedure that was happening, right? When he was talking about the um, the, the protein folding and think, uh, stuff like that, wasn't it, Katerina? It was just incredibly interesting to hear the biological mechanisms happening to why consolidation is important and what it's doing as well. That was my interesting take, or one of them from this amazing talk. Yeah, didn't it? I mean, it was like if you really want to teach kids stuff, you know, you, you, it would imply that, which makes sense, you know, you, you give them 
you give them, you know, some, some lessons, but then you got to like have downtime for them to consolidate instead of just, you know, ramming at one class after the next or something. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that, um, I think a lot of the ADHD pro problems we see nowadays are just a reflection of how we completely keep overstimulating during development brain i think uh, and this this just confirms the theories i had before quite um you know quite specifically so i agree and definitely discussing the mechanisms behind why consolidation is important is probably understated and should be um spoke about more because otherwise when you tell the you know, tell people so a kid or, or even an adult needs a bit time to process it somehow sounds almost lazy like oh i need time to consolidate yeah 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 get back to the next class or the next lesson or the next section you know it's not something you can hold on to it's just someone saying i need time to consolidate but even the biological factors like you know no one would argue if you work really hard in the gym that your muscles are really really sore and you can't just go and start lifting more nobody would argue on that front um but understanding better what's biologically happening in the brain when memories are becoming memories um maybe that would get the same amount of um respect yeah i think it justifies my afternoon naps yeah um, let's go with that so you know <laughs> yeah i need to consolidate <laughs> <laughs> but remember i actually did ask him um if small naps after uh an event was actually beneficial he did say he couldn't speak to the efficacy because he doesn't really know um but he did mention about sleep being important in general for um for like memory creation and, and keeping it um you know quite quite um what was it called accurate do you, what was it called i forget the term he was using but making it um a very good memory though sleep was very very important for that well let's all experiment and have you know when we read papers have naps <laughs> i'm down for this experiment i'll i will try this <laughs> Okay, shall we move to the next one? Or yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, let's oh, yeah. move. Go ahead. Oh no, I would, I would, no, I was just going to quickly last uh, say that um, I was really, really interesting what he was saying about the tests he was doing with the mice. How he used uh, was it special object trace? I think he called it. Um, with the mice when he put them out and he put three objects down and he let them examine this, and then he put them back into their cages where he didn't he gave them like minimal stimulation so that they could consolidate then he removed one of the the objects and he was noticing how the new object was something that caused it to notice it more and it was actually always studying the new object more which um he was indicating that um like uh, new changes um to what they remember causes them to pay more attention to the the changes um i actually found that really really interesting sorry that was that was my thought
Okay, I'm trying to pin the link, but my app didn't, it started freezing. I had to restart it, so now it works. Okay, good. Sorry about, lately the app has been freezing. Okay, so um, we had Dr. Garin um, as the next guest speaker. Um, he talked about the human brain evolution of abstract thought and he's at the Vanderbilt University um, and um, yeah this was also a really interesting talk so um, let's go over it um, yeah so he mostly um, so he looked at um, this evolutionary gap in, in the uh, primate default mode network organization so um, he looked at um, the diversity, first of all, uh, the diversity of different architectures, um, uh, size, weight, and then um, numbers of neurons and so on. And um, based um, on that, he did, um, he went over, you know, all this basic about um, different states during disease and um, how the brain activity looks and then he looked at a resting state network in different mammals and he found basically a really quite um, in, uh, interesting difference between humans and other mammals in this um, GMN the default mode network. Um, it was um, a lot of uh, brain imaging data that he shared with us, which is really impressive um, to um, go and have um, the ability to look at different sized mammals. Um, so he looked at human, macaque, marmoset, and also lemur. And he saw that um, in non-human species, the medial pre prefrontal cortex involvement is really is really minor um, in this default mode network, um, and uh, there is really a different, um, distinct non-human um, DMN um, that he dissected out. And um, later on, he even shared um, data sets that are not published yet, um, where he basically um, looked at a lot of data from different <clears throat> mammals again, and saw that it's not really a completely switch as they expected before, that basically all of a sudden you have human primates and um, the network just switches to become very different. It's actually a slow um, tendency um, that grows, that grew over time or changed over time to use this uh, DMN uh, that we see in humans. Um, if you look at slide number 25, that displays really well that evolutionary um, um, that evolutionary history that evolves towards this <laughs> default mode network that are um, 
team and humans. So it's not like a completely new um, way of thinking. It's just uh, a evolution that that uh, slowly evolved uh, towards um, this network structure. And uh, I think Serena um, asked some Glia uh, questions about that. If I'm surprised. Yeah, no, it's, um, it was really interesting that just how different the default mode patterning was in humans versus the other species. It's like, I don't know how, um, you know, what the deeper implications of that would be in terms of, of, you know, some of the models, animal models that we have. But it was interesting that, um, you know, just completely different regions are, are used when, you know, in the default mode. That was kind of fascinating. But their data was amazing. They had a, um, you know, much stronger magnet. What were you going to say, Katerina? Oh, yeah. Because of that, we mentioned um, that, you know, that um, mental health drugs don't work really well. And then if it's high of thought, let's say, worry of the future, um, that humans have, um, if we test this basically in animal models that have a very different network, uh, the brain regions they use, the question is, is that the problem why our um, mental health drugs don't do a good job in, in helping people? So this work is really important. Um, you know, it wasn't done for helping people with mental health disorders per se. It was just done out of curiosity how brain networks change throughout evolution. And then I think it becomes this huge, important groundwork for changing on how we hopefully will do um, uh, will develop mental health drugs in the future, taking this into consideration, hopefully. This is not always the case, right? Researchers find things and people completely ignore it for decades until somebody picks it up. So, um, yeah, we have to make a good job in putting this knowledge out there as much as we can, because I think this is really crucial for developing. I just heard yesterday um a podcast about how um, much um, suicide rates are in children increased the last years i think every year around 400 percent and the kids are getting smaller and smaller like i think one uh, six year old was last year than one of the younger ones but it's not uncommon anymore that a six-year-old commits suicide and I think, you know, and with the mental health issues increasing, um, we have to really uh, do a better job. And I think this shows how just really basic curiosity research is really important because you don't, it's to solve neuroscience. It's, it's a very complicated field. And if we do it in a planned way, uh, you know, I'm doing this to solve this, most of the time, like, not most of the time, but many times, not much useful stuff comes out. But all of a sudden, just a pure curiosity science project solves this, you know, because we it's so complicated. 
we don't do a good job at planning exactly the experiments needed. So yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. So Katarina, are you driving at like the difference between systematic studies and, and hypothesis driven work? Applied versus basic research. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been yeah. thinking about this a lot. The, the need to do things more systematically rather than just chasing one down one hypothesis at a time. Um, uh, yeah, I, just to add maybe just a little different perspective on this, because I, I, I saw the uh, I saw the talk and it was really, really interesting. I've, it, it overlaps a lot with I've been thinking about uh, comparison across species a lot lately. Um, it's really interesting. It's always always fair game to apply the same method across you know different species or different conditions and then you know report what, what the differences we see um and that the, the results uh are, are interesting um i i was recently reading this uh paper talking about the default mole network apparently there's uh an exponential increase in the use of the words default mode network in published papers right now it's like exploding but to uh inject the other viewpoint here there, there's a big question about whether this is actually means anything like it's not very clear that the idea of a baseline state for the brain actually makes sense or means something and you know putting aside all the kind of quibbles across the field on this kind of stuff about what's included in the network and what's not. But a lot of the studies that try to get at what the functional role of this might be are really, really difficult to interpret, right? It's like uh, lesions and things like this. It's it's hard to tell. It's not, it's not like the, we have a manipulation that gives us like a direct effect on whatever the function of this is. It's likely disturbing a lot uh, of other related processes, but, uh, yeah, anyway, it, it was really interesting, really well done studies, really, really cool talk. Uh, but I thought I would add in maybe uh, the the other uh, opinion on, on the default mode network stuff in the field. Yeah, it'd be great to see how just within humans, the, the variation across a much broader sampling to see how much it, it holds up and, you know, and it, with a a diversity of personalities, you know, what, what they do in their resting state and how their brain operates is there, is there general, you know, structural correspondence or regional correspondence, uh, or, you know, just, it, is it as various as, you know, as what people think about when they're just resting? Well, the thing is, what I was saying is that, um, you know, Joseph Ledoux has been writing about this for the last few years that all we did for anxiety disorders research in his lab and in other labs um, came up with these different treatments and drug treatments that don't work. They basically downregulate um, the excitability of the brain, but that's it real anxiety like an immediate threat response decreases 
but this anxiety that you have fear about the future and different scenarios that you come up with in your mind they don't get addressed by any of the treatments and especially the drug treatments and he uh, wrote that um, the problem is that we are doing all these tests in other mammals that don't have this um, complex thought process for the future worry type of processes and uh, we cannot really translate what we do in rats for a uh, very complex fear of the future uh, what could happen that could happen to us that happens in humans and uh, this data set before we didn't have real um, factual data set he, he wrote this and he annoyed a lot of people with this um, because it's basically 20 or 30 years of research he says you can all go home with it um, you know not as strongly but kind of that was the message and um, this is the first real data set if it's completely 100% accurate and stuff yeah that is debatable but this is at least the first data set that shows that this could be the problem why stuff is not working how are you doing it and why for certain things we cannot use animal models to study it uh, it just doesn't work yeah and you know reading about um you know the astrocytes role in binding emotion to memories and you know what you actually feel or how the how the moment actually feels or memories how they feel you know the binding between the amygdala and the hippocampus um, is you know has a strong astrocytic coupling to it i'm wondering though if you know are the is the drug discovery efforts for anxiety in these in other uh, areas actually targeting you know that process and you know you know PTSD treatments and so forth because the emotional coloring of memories um, I mean it strongly involves the, the astrocytes so it's just another angle I wonder if what we're seeing in the data though because the um, the metabolism of the astrocytes and how they uh, connect directly to the vasculature and uh, they, they actually you know synthesize glycogen and that glycogen is broken down into lactate that's fed to the neurons for their energy supply I'm wondering if what we're actually seeing in in the data has a um, if we're looking to some to some larger extent at the the metabolic activity of the astrocytes and how they're regulating the uh, blood flow and um, you know and supporting the neurons as they as they fire which is kind of interesting in its in a sense, it's sort of a, a reinterpretation of that data yeah I think I agree I think that's a really interesting point and what I also wonder the thought just came to me and it's probably nonsense because I would read more would need to read more about it but don't you think that maybe anesthesia's um, 
target more astrocytes than anything else because of what they mostly do they disrupt the large-scale communication between brain regions so they that's how they kind of disrupt um consciousness like there's still brain activity it's just very separated it doesn't oscillate throughout the brain so maybe it would be interesting um to maybe use low dosages of anesthetics and the interesting thing is we are doing that already with ketamine um ketamine works really well uh, for um depression and uh, severe anxiety disorders that are treatment resistant so i'm wondering if it actually has a biggest effect on astrocyte i i would certainly think so it's a, it's a hypothesis that would i would really be interested in seeing more you know pursued in the sense that the the you know the strength of these calcium waves so all of the uh, i mean essentially the major uh, neurotransmitter receptors are expressed in these astrocytes there um, but i don't know how any drug uh, treatment efforts or therapeutic treatments uh, really study them and uh, in the sense that uh, you know the, the you know that they are it, that's the network where it, it's actually coordinating the you know neural synchrony and the synchronous firing and is implicated in these higher cognitive functions i mean we, i think we really ought to give it a lot more attention when we're looking at therapies um but i think but, the only way forward i don't know but you know again the real mechanisms when we look at the actual mechanisms how ketamine works molecular and on the uh, neural network in that in that region is in animals but we know that astrocytes in humans are quite different so i think the way to go would be to create pretty good um, organoids with a pretty accurate ratio of um, astrocytes versus neurons and then look at the mechanisms how these drugs work in organoids so. Oh yeah, when we get to the organoid one, um, I'm gonna have some more fun. <laughs> that was a great talk. Yeah, so yeah, let's go on to Dr. Moultrie. Yeah. Oh, are we already to Motri? or are we just skipped? Oh, we skipped somebody? Mm, I don't I'm think not sure. so. Um, Moultrie is the brainwave, then it's Omega about the, okay, cool. the um, Tauta piece, and then Henry, uh, Dr. Henry was. Yeah, so Dr. Allison Moultrie, he is at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. And he is a professor. Um, there and he achieved many awards. Uh, one is being the rock star um, scientist, and I think he totally earned that. Um, he, he completely earned this, and it was like a really amazing talk. Um, it was like epic. <laughs> it was an epic talk. So, what he does is he creates uh, organoids uh, of human. Uh, brain tissue 
basically a human brain, a mini human brain on a dish. And um, he created this. At first, he talked about how they created a pretty good um, organoid recipe. And it has kind of similar um, gene expression patterns as um, in, you know, regular uh, human brain tissue, as far as we know. And then um, they can grow them pretty well and actually keep them. I said, I think he said up to three years was the longest one they kept the brain organoids. And um, they then started looking at, um, at some point at the organoid network activity <clears throat> and also long-term um, network activity. And it had some neural correlates um, to a regular human cognition um, and network oscillations emerged um, out of this cortical organoid network. Um, and it, it became, um, it mimicked the bursting phenomenon of an EEG of, um, of a very uh, small baby, of a preterm baby. And, um, yeah, they could um, they could really um, record um, LFP features that were quite um, comparable, and um, this was um, this was really interesting. The next thing he then uh, moved on to present uh, unpublished data, like real ongoing research that he didn't share before, at least. Like in this type of setting, probably not moving some stuff, but um, so you heard it first here in Science Society. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Yeah, Katarina, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you, they want to add some more sensory stimulation to the organoid. So what they did, they created an embodiment that as a little robot with different sensory inputs, um, and um and connect that to the organoids, um, which is amazing. So you have basically organoid that has its own little robot and um, and they will observe now how well that works and it will, if it will um, make the organoid mature even faster or better or have different features, how the organoid will control that robot. So that is coming up and he promised to come back um he also develops um organoids for different mental health disorders and things like um autism <clears throat> spectrum disorder the other uh, project that is still ongoing and not published uh, yet is um, he also uses them to um, study uh, evolution of humanoids um that was another really interesting uh, study and it kind of um, related to what we heard in the talk the day before. Um, and um, yeah, so he looked at um, different um, genes that may have resulted in a more sophisticated brain, um, especially a, a few genes that he saw that were related to neurodevelopment and mental health disorders were changed um, throughout evolution. Uh, so he reconstructed the ancestral brain 
basically, and create with ancestral brain um, you, uh, organoids. Um, yeah, he shared so many things. So he showed that the same neurodevelopment that the maturation was earlier in um, in um, ancestral uh, uh, organoids, and there was also altered network uh, neural connectivity. Uh, and yeah, they are still working on it um, in future um, experiments. And then they would, uh, they are also sending organoids out in outer space. Uh, they won um, a NASA award for $5 million to basically see what the effect is on this um, organoids in outer space. So they want to basically create um, and see how faster aging and aging affects um, these organoids to study aging. Um, so yeah, they are doing a lot of really exciting stuff. Check out their website. In the end, they have the page uh, 41. You can see they have a stem cell channel um, that also discuss about stem cell ethics. He's very concerned about um, ethics with this organize um, studies and um, yeah check out their channel and um, keep um, checking out this website he I think updates pretty well his current research and it's it's really stunning it's really awesome may I just say that um, if for anybody listening to this right now um, there's something here for everybody if you're a biologist or a neuroscientist there's plenty organoid action going on there um, if you're actually interested in um, robots and little cybernetic organoid robots, there's something for you there. Even if you're a science fiction writer who needs some ideas, come to this replay and listen to the amazing things he's doing because it was giving me plenty of ideas I was scribbling down as well. <laughs> yeah, this was just an absolutely amazing uh, body of work. Um, certainly, you know, and when we get talking about astrocytes and the developing these organoids, what was really fascinating is that they, there was, um, you know, non-coordinated neural activity until a, it was about two months. And they all, then they, they just sort of came online and started firing together in synchronicity. And I asked him, well, as to what were the astrocytes doing? And it was very clear to him, yeah, that's when the astrocytes sort of came online and started driving this synchronous behavior. And it continued um, to, you know, the, the actual brain waves and the oscillatory behavior just continued to develop with these much larger coordinated firing patterns as, uh, you know, later, I think they, well, they showed data up to six months. But um, it was just a really, you know, strong confirmation about how it was, you know, in the astrocytes, they really organize and the neural activity. And uh, it's actually re really, um, you started to see the more, um, you know, brain-like activity when the astrocytes reach that level of maturity. And, and so that, you know, the implications are, were just really fascinating. But the, but the bit about um, the, yeah, archaeolized, I think that was his term, um, basically taking, 
Neanderthal genes and, and getting organoids with them. That, that was really bizarre. Um, but the, these aren't, there's no vasculature in these organoids. So there was some discussion about, um, you know, how they are, they're so that sort of limits their growth because it, you know, it becomes nutrient limiting. But when they, the two organoids come together and they touch, they start to fuse. And, um, you know, so there might be some way of, you know, mesh delivery and building up larger organoids with at least letting them fuse through, you know, some type of artificial vascular nutrient system. Um, but there's, there's just a lot of directions this work can go in and it's just really fascinating stuff. I, uh, can I, I actually like, I... ask you, oh, sorry, beg your pardon, please go. No, go for it, Dean. Oh, okay. I was, I was all, what I was going to ask was, there was a part here where you mentioned um, the potency of progenitor uh, cells turning into glia and then to astrocytes. That sounded really interesting to me, but I wondered if um, anyone here could explain that and if, uh, what that actually means in terms of significance. Is that like a big deal or what is this special or can anyone shed some light on that, please? Well, I think that was just the differentiation path from the from the stem cells as the astrocytes were forming. They would stem cells would the progenitor cells would differentiate, and that's I mean that's how it's formed. But it it's it's awesome that you know all of this works at all. You know it's amazing um, because that's the I mean the developmental um, trajectory in these organoids is. Um, would certainly be our best model yet in terms of, you know, testing, testing things. And if we can characterize what's actually going on and, and improve the methods of um, keeping and studying these organized, it could really, you know, really be fundamental. Ah, I see. Thank you. Sir. I was going to ask, I'd, I was going to ask, I'd, I didn't catch the talk. With, when it comes to these uh, the, the burst activity and the um, the emergence of uh, oscillations in in, uh, in the dish, did the, was there a market difference between um, the dish with and without embodiment? Did, was there a big difference in, they, in the? Yeah, they don't Go have ahead. the data yet. They are still figuring out like troubleshooting because when the robot moves, it kind of keeps destroying too much of the organoid. So they are, so they, they change to have it um, basically um, <clears throat> a remote control that is wireless, um, but then there's a delay that is almost a second, I believe. So that's problematic for having like accurate movement and sensory information processing. Uh, but they are working on that part to like improve, improve that. So um, they don't, I asked about that too. And uh, they don't have that data yet because they are still working on making this work better. That That's interesting. That seems like um, <clears throat> it's calling for like a neuromorphic input, something that just really quickly low energy sends spikes and you don't have a bunch of like delay for computation. Um, but that, that's really cool. The reason I was asking is I was, I was thinking about this idea of oscillation setting up in the dish 
And I'm, I'm asking myself, does this add or detract from the idea that oscillations are um, the mechanism for cognition or computations uh, related to cognition? Um, there might be an argument for uh, this just showing that maybe they're, they are just bio, by, byproducts of biophysical computations that are happening at a, at a lower level. Um, but if they did have data that showed uh, interesting differences between in these oscillations, uh, you know, with and without embodiment, with and without, you know, uh, engaging the network and learning and, and things, then maybe there would be something to say to argue for the causal role of, of these oscillations. But uh, yeah, really, really interesting research. I wish I had caught the, the talk. Well, yeah, they because yeah. they are. Oh, go ahead, Katarina. No, no, you go first, and then I'll. Well, because we we started. To, I mean, the chim chimeric organoids work, you know, because they'll just fuse, and so there was some discussion about uh, parts of, um, you know, or differentiation into visual regions or some type of other sensory regions, and perhaps fusing them, um, and and you know, but but to they they are at least thinking and moving in the direction of trying to understand whether you know if you provide external sensory input is that going to be driving in a more develop you know will that influence the development other than you know these organoids that are that that are just sitting there in the dish and and the embodiment thing yeah they they're they're still trying to just get the mechanical placement and the connections stable and very early on, but um, yeah, just that, that's what I was going to ask about. You were saying that the the robot was uh, destroying the organoids, so I was just wondering how that worked—if it was a mechanical problem or an electrical yeah, problem. Or... It's mechanical, but I wonder why the robot can't be just be one. It doesn't. Does it really still have to be a physical robot? Can it be something? that work, walks around in a virtual reality and have simulated um, visual and texture input. So basically you tell the robe, like you tell the sensor um, what it's supposed to, what the input's supposed to be. Can you just do that instead? You know, like just say you're touching grass and uh, make the sensor think it's touching grass so you don't have that physical mechanical stress. So that's one thing. Yeah, the, the way the... Maybe the... Sorry, go that's ahead. That's clever. That's clever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I have another point, but go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that's what the what Fristen's group did. They embodied a, a dish in, in a game of Pong. And so the, the environment was mapped to the, the dish. Uh, so there was like a visual area, quote unquote, visual area where it mapped um, all the the objects in the in the game to that to there, and then there was an area for motor control and all this, and it, it didn't require a robot. My other question was why why can't the um, the connections be mechanically fixed? Um, I was just curious how, how why that was a, a challenge. Yeah, I just think it's just the. So, you know, it's just they're that early on in the in the experimental setup and they just hadn't refined it. Maybe that's why he was willing to talk about it. If it, if it worked and the, you know, the little robots were running around, it'd be, you know, he'd 
probably not say anything till the nature paper. <laughs> but on this question though, Katarina, of can you just do a simulation? You know, I think about this a lot because part of, um, you know, in development in the in the day job, you know, we start out with an all digital and we have to to really get, um, you know, high fidelity aerodynamics and control actuation loops and actually tuning an autopilot to, you know, work at those speeds. But, um, but as you go into hardware in the loop and uh, you actually, there's a lot of surprises and retunings and, um, you know, actually having to operate in hard real time it's a different thing. Like you can't just go off and compute something until you're done and come back because, you know, nature will just move on without you. And but so actually, just, huh? I'm sorry. But just to train or to see if there are differences, couldn't you just record five minutes of a robot running around and all the sender information and then replay it to the organoids just to see if sentry inputs make a difference? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you can, but the lessons learned in the fine motor control will be different lessons. So you, you know, you can. It, it won't necessarily mean that if they learn how to play in the metaverse, that they're suddenly going to be able to operate a real robot in nature. There's, there's different tunings, and you know, it's a difference. Um, they may be better at it, but they're still. It's not the same. Yeah, yeah, I see. I, I was thinking, you know, you just record five minutes walking through a building and somebody coming out of a, in the hallway and and then you kind of give all that sensor information to the organoid and you see what the organoid would do in that moment. And then you replay it back to the robot. Um, so for the organoid, it's in real time. But, but for example, to learn, distress. yeah, for example, to learn not to fall down, it's very, it, that's, that, there's some very high end physics to, to get that right. Um, yeah, in the future, but until they get to, um, it, I don't mean to completely replace it, but I'm just curious for now to know if that sensory information makes a difference in the oscillations and in the development of the organoids and the complexity and uh, astrocytes if they become more, um, if they uh, replicate more. Like for that, I think that might be enough. And in the meantime, they would need to work on to do, you know, for the future to do, to have like real time um, processing. Well, it's possible, but say for example, that these oscillations are control structures and that the specific timing of the real experience is um, is is what's actually driving the the oscillations and the actual metabolism and the the spatial distributions and the different gap junctions support particular waves at particular frequencies if if those are actually what's coupled into the control system it may be completely different in a simulated environment and so it, it, I mean, I think, I do believe you can go far with simulation, but it would just depend on the nature of control because we know these aren't von Neumann type architectures. These are, you know, so there's the, they're more akin to anal they're analog devices in an instance. So the frequency response actually may be very, um, 
directly coupled to the actuation consequences. I, I agree with both of you. <laughs> I, I think there is a big difference between virtual embodiment and actual embodiment. But I, I think, Katarina, you're right that this could be a, a good stepping stone in between the two because there's just a lot of stuff to work out um, in terms of getting input in and getting certain behaviors out of, of the dish like this. And, and so maybe trying something in between, especially if they're struggling with the, the mechanical um, setup for the, for the experiment, maybe this would be a good place to kind of uh, make progress while they're working on that. So to, in order to um, get the delay out of the way through the wireless connections, they would need to build a quantum network. So we would need to hook them up with the guest invited speaker uh, that uh, we had a while ago um, that built this quantum um, um, wireless internet connections. Because then well, you don't have... Delay. Well, why would you need quantum? I mean, what quantum Isn't that effects immediately would you need? Because you have this uh, teleportation effect. Um, so, uh, our tele um, so you basically, if um, the, you know, if information processing in one, in one uh, photon yeah, the entanglement. Yeah, changes, well, you, have, you have immediate response, so you don't have that second delay. You have an immediate... Well, I think the delay, I mean, a delay of a second is, is just a bad setup. I mean, you can have real hardware in the loop that as long as you're rate matched, um, and since these are actual organoids, it, I mean, they could have an electronic system to, to address those delays. Um, I think that they're just so early on, but I, that's, a, that's far more in the engineering than the, the science though, and getting a good coupling sensory feedback loop without delays yeah but it has to be wireless right so you don't because you have to have so until now you still have to have tiny physical electrons it's not like you put a patch on the brain and uh, you don't have anything to hook it up to right and when we do that let's say in mouse skulls or something we always attach it somehow still to the skull but you don't have the skull an organoid. So uh, once it slightly moves, um, you co you completely screw up the hookup, basically, to have precise recordings from the same exact spot. Yeah, but I mean, was issue organoids slide Yeah, the they, they, then the, the electrodes start moving, and then it screws up everything. You know. And so it has to be wireless. Maybe they, then, yeah. yeah, maybe they should check out what Kristen's doing with the with the brain brain dish stuff because they have like a really solid worked out uh, stimulation recording yeah. system at the, the bottom of the dish. Is, so the thing is, these organoids at this size they cannot be attached to a dish. They have to be floating, and the floating has to be kind of constantly moving so there is like it has to be a rotation at a certain pace so there is enough um, uh, solution penetrating to the throughout the organoids and even then 
if they do that. They still have in the middle uh, tissue that after a while um, starts uh, dying. Like I think they managed up to three years, <clears throat> but still even with this uh, flotation and rotation, they have tissue in the middle that it doesn't get enough um, nutrient and probably the pH level changes. I guess the biggest thing is the pH level, which leads me to the second thing. Uh, we suggest, we asked why can't they, um, since Chimera work pretty well, I said, why um, can't they build, um, and I looked it up again. There's a pretty established <clears throat> and pretty good way to make a cell-free um, artificial printed vascularization system and line it with uh, lung cells um, that are um, there for gas, gas exchange and pH level adjustment. So I think if you would 3D print it, um, you wouldn't have that issue and then you wouldn't need to have them floating and then you could have them fixed and then you could solve also the electrode fixing uh, problem. So I think they need to start making this artificial vascularity. It's basically some collagen and some other stuff mixed um, that you can 3D print and then you add the... Um, the lung cells, that's my theory. I would add these lung cells. I never See, tried I think, it. But... Yeah, they really need to get the vascular right because they're growing them to the point of it's nutrient limited. But, it, but, but they already know that two of them will fuse. And so, for example, like you were saying, if you could 3D print, you know, say, <laughs> here it comes, a matrix of, um, you know, this artificial vascular and start the organoids in their little cells. As they grow, they'll fuse and you'll have this whole brain in the matrix that's vascularized. But it would also be stable and it would solve the frame fixing problem as well. Yep. It's one of the biggest problems right now to, um, 3D, to vascularize artificial organs. But you can have a because the cell one is really hard. Like people are working on this companies everywhere around the world and it's not working pretty well. But I saw uh, a, a book actually that I looked into while <laughs> moving. <laughs> I looked into that, started this in the beginning of the 2000s or even early to do a cell-free one. And that works actually pretty well and it doesn't collapse as much. So if you could add in little uh, mini pores with the lung cells, that would be really cool. He said he would look into the lung cell part, but um, but I, I didn't have, like, I didn't look up the, the cell-free vascularization 3D printing method yet, so I would have to well, write him. Well, damn, that. Katarina, why don't we just do it? I know, right? <laughs> we How much would that cost just to have a small setup lab on that couple hundred grand? I don't know. We should, we should look in or like, cause they'd probably give us, you know, the starter kits <laughs> or the samples or, you know, the little organoids so we could, but the 3d printing setup, Jin, are you, you're familiar with how to do that, Katarina? Well, um, there is an easy cheap version. 
I don't know if that is good enough. That is basically a bunch of syringes and uh, that you squeeze out noodles that you can make in all kinds of shapes you want and tiny as you want with a hole in the middle. That is pretty cheap and straightforward and not like, you know, the company I work for, we have this, you know, um, engineer, self-made, complicated 3D printer that's really hard to calibrate. Like the engineers have to basically use it. But the the easy one, the pretty straightforward version is just, you know, you have a bunch of um, syringes. Uh, that you basically squeeze at the specific ratio into whatever you want, into discs, little noodles, whatever you want, tiny ones. Uh, and um, if that would be enough, and that's pretty stable. Like if you mix it with collagen and stuff, those noodles that come out are pretty stable. So we would just need to, you know, make maybe, you know, maybe you could even use Hamilton syringes. Yeah. Anyways, stable noodles. <laughs> stable noodles. I love it. Stable noodles, and, and, and this isn't going to be one of those dried packets where you just add water and mix and leave it in the fridge overnight, right? And you've got a jar full of organoids after that. Well, it's it's really <laughs> you mix collagen stuff, you mix in some cells, and then you squeeze it out, and you know you make little molds and you squeeze it out however you want. Well, because that really seemed to be their current limitation is they just can't because the organoids will grow past the point where they can't really feed themselves well. And so they have to have them rotating just to get nutrients to. But that's, you know, like, you know, if, if they could solve or we or somebody could solve the vascular issue. Yeah, they, I could just go over there. <laughs> <laughs> they would hire me for a couple of weeks or so. <laughs> I could go over there and squeeze them some collagen, mix lung cell noodles, and then they could build their organoids around it. Um, yeah. Let's let's put in a grant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it should work. I I don't see why it wouldn't work. It's pretty. Uh, and then yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I have a question: Is part of the issue the permeability? Yeah, exactly. Of yeah, because there's no pores basically in between that let um, the solution in and the nutrients and the pH um, leveling solution. Right, the, the volume increases faster than the surface and there's no vasculature, so there's no way to feed, you know, the cells, you know, in the center or it just, it gets too big and the diffusion can't keep up with the demand. And so that limits them. But if there was vasculature, especially if the astrocytes could actually reach the blood, because they're the ones that are going to be taking stuff out of the blood or whatever fluid is there and feeding the neurons with it. So um, if they could, if they were compatible with this, um, these noodles, <laughs> that could work. That would uh, overcome that in principle overcome that limitation and they could grow larger and it may be a way to limit the growth too so you keep the ratio proper for for saturation you know so you don't have like the dinosaur pro or not the dinosaur like why do we don't have enormous insects you know so there's there's got to be a golden ratio of um 
you know. I, I for one, am glad we don't have giant insects. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to ride a butterfly from Miami. <laughs> okay, fine. Well, that I could do in the backyard. <laughs> well, yeah. In that little cabin. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it's just the selfie version first. I could, you know, let's just call it and stuff well, like that. There's no. Yeah. Thing. So, well, so that would be the test. If we do the collagen, will, will astrocytes actually take to it? Will they be able to interface with it and draw nutrients out of it? That would be the key. Yeah. Step. Just collagen mixed with astrocytes. Yeah, that wouldn't. Or some kind of way to increase the saturation point or decrease the saturation point, increase um, the ability of the solution to permeate on a chemical level, if not physical. Well, if the, uh, yeah, if the astrocytes were in a medium that um, the only real source of enduring nutrition would be in these uh, collagen noodles, if they continue to grow, that would show that they're actually drawing nutrients from, from the collagen noodles. And if we could feed them, you know, you could do the controls where you, you know, have it nutrient rich and get growth rates versus nutrient poor and, and you know, what's, what's getting them. That would be really cool. It would. So we could have like penne and fusilli and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get characteristic different <laughs> oscillations, whether it's Penny Lucy. <laughs> Y'all making the me hungry. The interesting thing is that it would be cool if it would be the snail shape, you know, the spiraling oh. shape <laughs> of the organoid then. <laughs> Just that <laughs> Archimedes spiral. Yeah, and then have different fluorescent um, markers. You know, along the way, so it would look like some some colored spiral. Is this turning into an art? Pretty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Different art. Well, we want the nature paper. <laughs> we need basically an art pro project. Pretty pictures. Pretty time. pictures. Spiral though, the, the permeability decreases at the center though. Maybe. People are still trying to get a Open get spiral. a cochlear hair cells to grow in a dish, so we could just do it on a spiral. Yep. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Well, we have a plan. Let's write a grant. No, seriously, we should write a grant and then. Yeah, we should. Let's do that. If you already, yeah, because this is a good approach for that, and that's one of their big problems. They'd probably want to go out on it with us too. Well, if That'd you cool. if you if you solve that, every single organ growing company <laughs> even the nipples guy that is here on clubhouse did you ever hear the nipples guy no. who makes artificial nipples okay that was pretty in the beginning of clubhouse there was this nipples guy he has this company in israel oh, i'm sorry we are moving <laughs> stuff fell down so um uh the nipples guy he so 
having uh, for people that had to because of cancer or any reason reconstruct the breast the nipple is still uh, pretty hard to do and usually it's kind of a really ugly sometimes uh, made um, nipple and he's an artist so they hired him or made a company with him um, to basically artfully make this artificial nipple and what they try is to have the tissue grow around that artificial one and, uh, so that it will become an actual nipple and then this the printed stuff uh, kind of dissolves over time you know you have different materials that would dissolve over time but then the problem is that first of all the nipple will stay and that uh in that in place and also have that form but then also to vascularize it and so that it won't die off so there are a lot of company <laughs> just a nipple one because he wasn't uh, called here of all the short, <laughs> of all the ap applications on a short list Katarina, i'm impressed that you thought of the nipple guy but <laughs> no really nipples to noodles it's great Nipples to noodles. <laughs> but I don't know. Wait, but, he was but, here all the time. I'm presenting his nipple company. That's well, why. That's, I mean, it's it's legit, but it does sort of. That sounds like a smile. that sounds like a really clickbaity room title. I mean, that is fantastic. You know, it's one of those things that unless it's in your circle of, you know, experience, you don't know that people are suffering mm -hmm. from. It's fantastic. I love. Yeah, no, it's, it's, there's, it, it's a legit thing, but it is kind of amusing. But seriously, Katarina, we should like put a grant in. This is obviously oh, yeah. a, a general thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. You so. heard it here on Clubhouse, on Science Society. <laughs> I heard Dennis ask about how much it would cost. So I'm just curious if, um, if you're the secret funder, maybe, Dennis. Yeah, if you know somebody with a lot of money, <laughs> I you wish. can put the budget together. Like a cheap one. Well, cheap, you know, as far as it goes to buy human cells and and have a sterile mm -hmm. setup and, and collagen, but it's comparable. I th it's not millions of dollars to do this. Me, it's less than. I mean, sure, if if we could just rent a lab space, because I wouldn't want to give this to anyone just away. So if we could rent our own lab space, would be the rent of it, and then buy like a bunch of cells and some collagen and other stuff. Let's see, a few thousand dollars and the rental and you know us like working on this well, well yeah it's not oh, like it's going to be a one and done thing you know it's would refine it and characterize it and you know there'd be a series of papers and stuff yeah send out the tissue we don't have to have everything you can send out tissue for sequencing and functional analysis to companies mm -hmm. yeah, but it's like for sure you know, under five hundred thousand, I would say. So the purpose is um, our new purpose is vascularization of tissue, such as organoids. Well, there, are, yeah, there are a couple of things though. Um, in order to you know scale these up, there's there needs to be a nutrient delivery system that scales with it, but also um, 
in terms of embodiment, having a having a frame, a rigid or stable frame that they can grow around, um, it allows the uh, at least stable placement of sensory inputs. So they don't. Um, but yeah, if if you're just, I mean, if these organoids can grow around a lattice or a, that feeds, you know, that, that can deliver nutrients. Um, you know what other what else is the angle with the astrocytes is they um, they control the uh, the blood flow too with vasodilators and vasoconstrictors, and so in regions of activity they they can increase or decrease. I wonder if these collagen noodles would have that kind of um, properties that that the astrocytes could. What it sounds like you're describing reminds me of the vascular system of plants, you know, like the xylem and phloem and and the cellulose structure. Because so I'm thinking, wow, all we need, all, all your, it's like people are trying to replace a living organism, you know. Um, but that's kind of maybe, you know, speaking of chimera, maybe a plant that already is is having its own uptake and, you know, respiration. Well, the, we are. I mean, these are living. Yeah. These organites are alive. Right. They and just I mean, grow mm -hmm. them inside of a plant of another structure that was plant-like, is what I'm saying. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, with the um, in the in the mammalian brain, it's um, the astrocytes really for vasodilators. There's um, well, it's nitrous oxide is one, but then there's another. I can't remember. I'm kicking myself. But then the vasoconstrictor is uh, the arachidonic acid, which is the endogenous ligand for cannabinoid receptors, which I thought was kind of cool. But um, they have a way to increase or decrease the, the blood flow. And so I wonder if, um, you know, how do how we pull that one off? But then they could uh, actually start producing, um, you know, increased activity where they, where they need, you know, whatever they, whenever they decide that there's something that needs to be processed here, they, they pull, they can pull more nutrients out of the, the vasculature. This would be really cool. We got to do this. This is going to be fun. Yep. This would be really cool. So shall we, shall we move on to the last one? No, last two. We still have two. Oh my God, <laughs> almost as long as that. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, then a doctor, uh, MD, PhD, <clears throat> uh, still MD, PhD student, but she's quite accomplished, um, Dr. Gabrielle Zuniga. She is in um, at the um, South Texas Medical um, in the South Texas Medical Scientist Training Program and this MD PhD program in the third year, and um, yeah, she had this. She uh, published this really uh, interesting paper recently. Uh, where um, she looked at tau-induced deficits in nonsense-mediated RNA decay 
and how this decay contributes to neurodegeneration. So this was a really um, great presentation where she <clears throat> showed her research in Drosophila and how um, she used the tau transgenic Drosophila to first to recapitulate like key features of human tautopies. And then she showed <clears throat> the neural invaginations, how they are present in Drosophila and the human tautopathy. And um, then she went on and looked at um, the hypothesis that RNA is the information messenger for this um, invagination process. Um, and um, nuclear invagination cause aberrant nucleocytoplasmic transportation of RNA and how this RNA accumulates within uh, the nuclear invaginations in tau transgenic drosophila, she showed that, and, um, and that without these RNA accum accumulations, um, how these changes, you know, how the changes in this RNA accumulations changes the invaginations in this tau transgenic drosophila. And then she, they analyzed why might this excess in RNA export to be toxic to the cell. And they looked at this nonsense mediated mRNA decay, NMD, and that this is reduced in this tau transgenic drosophila. And that basically NMD is this key mechanisms in, involved in that. And um, if these tau induced deficits in NMD uh, they looked at this contributes to actually to neurogeneration, degeneration, and what the potential link is between the blunted and MD and tau induced invaginations. They showed that next, and how um, the transcription, the NMD target transcription within the nuclear invaginations, and how they are differently um, translated into protein. So it was a really thorough uh, research of that mechanism. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's really important work to know the exact mechanism in tautopy and how it changes in aging uh, that will hopefully give us, you know, new targets to, to address that and hopefully earlier on um, so that neurodegeneration doesn't um, continue to do its damage. So I think it was really interesting and she did a great job in presenting a really complicated data set. No comments? <laughs> did such a great job explaining this. <laughs> um, okay. Then on Friday, that was the last one um, from this week, was Dr. Azagun Henry. He just recently, uh, he's at um, back at MIT. Um, he is, well, he did um, his um, master's degree at um, uh, Georgia Tech. His, uh, his special degree in Florida 
University and his PhD in medical in, in mechanical engineering at MIT. And then he did postdocs and um, he explained, like, if you want to hear his story of um, how he became who he is now in, in his science career, please listen to the replay. He gave us a really detailed description from what motivated him already in high school, how the teachers were that motivated him to go into science and and um, to like satisfy his curiosity and then also uh, how his career went on later on. Yeah, I think that was a really important and interesting part and Victoria, uh, you know, the team, you guys did an amazing job in interviewing him and getting that basically for us, that information for us. Um, I think it's always really interesting. And um, yeah, he um, develops novel energy system concept and also storing of energy from renewable energies, including solar energy um, uh, storage and transportation. And um, <clears throat> um, he uh, uses high temperature, um, concentrated solar power using liquid metals or molten salt and ceramic refractory base fluid handling infrastructures and he creates high temperature thermochemical engineering conversion and reactor design um, he works on methane pyrolysis for hydrogen production solar fuels uh, direct contact exchange heaters um, like he works <laughs> on so many different things and he gave us a pretty uh, broad um, overview of the research he's working on and he also recently started a company um, that especially um, works on solutions for renewable energy storage um, um, facilities that are scalable so um, so we can transition to that actually cheaper energy and uh, also you know uh, good for preventing further climate change um, effects so i don't know serena if everyone else wants to pitch in. he definitely did a good job to make um, mathematics sound really cool and really really exciting and effective i i really love the promotion he had with that I want to do maths right after the talk. During the talk, I want to do maths. <laughs> yeah, no, this was a really cool um, body of work. It was a, a real feat of engineering as well as science. I mean, the way it is, he is going for a utility scale um, means of storage of energy from solar fields. And uh, it was it, it was cool how he you know he said they sort of imagine this this huge vat of graphite containing the molten tin, and as it's pumped out, um, it's glowing you know white hot, and around those pipes there's the thermophotovoltaic that uh, that and that's just wrapped in this gold reflective foil to reflect any light that's not absorbed back into the uh, the molten tin and so he keeps this molten this huge vat of um, the molten tin in this in this graphite uh, it's about 2400 celsius he keeps it at 
but then you know during the pumping and the cooling it you know will get down to about 1700 and pumped back in um but you can you know if he just shut everything off this thing is so big it would take you know months for it to cool and you know that's the economy of scale and going for the utility is that you know the volume it's that surface to volume thing again <laughs> um but it's uh it, you know i asked about the the footprint of this thing relative to the size of the solar field that would have to support it and it was just very small you know it's so you wouldn't even notice it's still the solar field is is the you know the big uh the big footprint in this you know tower with this vat of molten tin um, would allow you 24 7 to recover and the uh the big breakthrough was the 40 percent efficiency on that uh, which is you know much higher than than you know we had before so it really does look like a uh, a big advance for you know supporting the energy in these in these big solar fields and anywhere else you you needed to i thought it'd be cool if there was like a family farm scale but it, it's a sort of a diminishing return if you go too small on it but um at the large scale it's uh looks like it's really promising so it's pretty cool Yeah, I totally agree. And I hope that, you know, he becomes really successful with that. And um, yeah, and it will be used in, in the real world. So yeah, I'm wishing him all the best. <laughs> we did, right? <laughs> As we do. Wish him yeah, all I the fun. I, I really appreciated that he's driven not only by his motivation, by, but by his desire to make a positive change in the world. And it made me think of how we are, you know, we just owe so much of a debt to people who are able to to take on the work that he's taking on and to secure funding for that. I just, <coughs> excuse me, I just felt, <clears throat> sorry, choking on my tea. Um, yeah, it's just so much gratitude for that, that he followed his path. It's also notable that there was a, a particular humility there when he said that, uh, you know, any anyone who looks at heat exchangers is not going to be impressed because it's, you know, it, was, it, it, it just, you know, he was in essence reflecting that it wasn't necessarily sexy, but it's just in a really important problem to scale up. and. And so that's, you know, to the point you were making, Victoria, it's, you know, he is going through the work to scale this up to where we could see it on a utility scale and draw the benefits from it. Um, so that's really notable. Yeah, um, often in the audience asks, how do you pump molten tin? And, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you're saying it's not, wasn't really sexy, or he was saying that. And I was just, the whole time, I, I couldn't stop visualizing that. Oh yeah, I mean, his whole, you know, working. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, his whole setup was kind of badass, I thought. But um, they, he did go into, you know, a lot of the work was figuring out how to, you know, it was engineering of nature, is figuring out, okay, they're going to go with graphite, and then how do we get this pump system going, and what's going to be, 
stable at 2400 Celsius and you know and how do we how do we do this so there was a lot of the work um, just getting to the point where you could actually build these facilities that he um, you know he kind of glossed over but yeah no it's um, it is really cool that because uh, it replaces the the eutectic salts that that the concentrated solar panels use now is just to be able to do it with liquid metal and um you know tin is is cheap and it's um but but being able to you know keep it in this liquid form and and i mean metallurgy is really cool like i remember opening a book on metallurgy and like you do your random read and and at 900 celsius nickel makes a fine solvent and I'm like are you kidding me <laughs> but yeah when you get into these high temperature you know metallurgical applications it's really crazy. It's just so far beyond, you know, your day-to-day experience. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's got he's got pumps of molten tin at twenty-four hundred Celsius. Oh, he also said when you look at it, it's still shiny. And you can look at it. I mean, he must be wearing protective goggles. Well, yeah, but. But yeah, it's still it's still shiny. Yeah, he did say there was no indication that it was the temperature that it was. It looked, um, you know, like oh that would be okay. Um, didn't it? Wasn't it Serena right? He said there was no visible difference in it. It still was the shiny way it looked. Um, at these super super high temperatures, it wouldn't glow specially or any, or bubble or anything like that. Well, it was glowing, but it does glow. Uh, I mean, depending on the temperature, it's like his photovoltaic was in the infrared, but um, he said it was just glowing white hot. But if you, yeah, if you take a, I think he had a YouTube uh, video where, he, you know, they, because this whole, um, you don't want oxygen around. Uh, so it's, it's in this warehouse with the uh, argon atmosphere or something. Um, because you know you'll, you'll start oxidizing the graphite eventually and um so you got to go in with protective equipment because uh you know you need to bring in your own oxygen and make sure it doesn't escape but yeah it's just glowing um shiny molten tin kind of crazy well something else speaking of yeah speaking of tin and cheap or not is is um you know, the sustainability of this and how we can get to a point. Hey, Sissy Rahim here, here you come. Um, yeah, how can we get to a, a point of maintaining sustainability? Because Thank I'm thinking that, um, you know, the shortages because there is more demand for batteries, but but also why is it cheap? You know, whose, whose land are we exploiting and whose people are we not taking, you know, the companies, not us, but, you know, taking good enough care of that, that, and are willing to work for certain wages that are, you know, maintaining that, that low price, which might not reflect something reasonable for maintaining life as, you know, with um, respect and, and kindness. So recycling is, you know, I'm just wondering how much yeah. can be, um, pr- carried out with recycling what we've already mined 
It's a good point. And um, I mean, tin's not a rare earth. Um, I'm not sure what the mining chain is for tin and where it's mined. And, but it's, you know, it's in solder. It's, it's, it's what solder mostly is. And so it, it is a readily available and very common element. Um, but it, you, your, your points, you know, yeah, it's a good point. Like the choice of metals should, should matter. And we need to consider the whole supply chain, especially on these utility scale activities. Yeah. And I have to say also, if I just may keep on this for one moment, um, the ocean floor is at risk for mining and it's not pretty. It's not, it's, it's terrible. It's a really terrifying prospect. The the legality of it, um, considering who has sovereignty or not sovereignty, but who has who can take control over the ocean floor and you know intercontinental areas. It's really something um, to read up on because the ocean um, needs our protection, and so everything living in there. You know, imagine tearing up the ocean floor because there are, you know, manganese and just tons of things down there um, that have been deposited. And, and um, yeah, so like there's, even if we get off of, even if we go offshore, that's also at risk. If we, um, it's important to develop, um, you know, use what we've already got would be just so great. And I think it's just going to be um, I think we've done a lot of damage to land animal habitat. So if we keep going into the ocean, um, and even especially those deep sea um, animals that only live in those like um, areas of the ocean where humans don't usually explore, I think that would definitely cause uh, a change in the ocean ecosystem where some of these animals will be coming up higher up and it would definitely mess with the um like the, the 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 food chain and things like that so i think we should probably leave things alone so we we already mess with the environment a lot so yeah well yeah, but really it should be noted though that um at least you know this author's method is uh, an important part of making solar energy uh, reliable and stable at scale which is um you know in, in a very good way uh, undermining the fossil fuel industry in the sense that part of part of why um, we haven't been able to get more out of solar energy is because of its uh, you know the unreliability of of having you know we have a constant demand but that the sun isn't always shining in the right way or you know cloud cover and so forth but being able to store the energy goes uh, a huge step towards ultimately helping the environment. So, yeah, these are, yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Serena, can you send me that uh, information about um, what you're talking about with the manufacturing of solar panels? Very interested in this. Um, something like, is it like 40% of the solar panels uh, come from China? And then, so if we were to look, um, Victoria, I just really appreciate you bringing up um, the supply chains and the extraction of rare earth metals, and um, and also the indigenous um, the indigenous uh, um, populations in in the different countries. Um, and we can't just think about just our own country and allow them to politicize issues, and then allow other countries to go, uh, you know go into other countries, put them into debt, take ports and airports, um, 
build uh, one belt, one road initiative and um, basically lay claim to the most resources around the world as possible. And um, if we're looking at uh, where these Tesla cars are manufactured, well, they're manufactured in China. Um, and uh, a showroom was just built right next to the Uyghur internment camp. So um, we've, we've got to look at a global um, scale when we look at supply chains and uh, rare earth minerals and resources and how they're um, extracted, transported, used, um, manufactured into goods and then sold to people and not just focus on the, um, the good uh, that is sold and think that that's going to solve problems without uh, going to um, the original source of where these materials came from. Yeah, so, well, that, that, uh, sorry, if I could just make this point, it speaks to why it's so important that we think cross-disciplinary, that this Dr. Henry's work is phenomenally important and really life-changing, could be life-changing for all of us. And in support of that, everything else, you know, how could we support that work? Um, you know, who else is doing work that supports his work so that, so that we are acting with, yeah, with, with that conscience that we're speaking of, but not to, not to um, diminish the importance of his work at all, just to keep that mind to keep that our minds, our eye on on um, the humanity that we're discussing as well. Yeah, these are all really critical points, and I agree, Kyle, with what you're saying. Um, that, but just to be clear, the I wasn't speaking of the manufacturing of solar panels. I was speaking of the method that's pinned to the the top of the uh, room here, and it was about energy storage. Um, thermally from, you know, from solar fields and they using a concentrated solar because we want to, um, in essence, heat, heat up, um, a medium in this case, the, the tin and, um, it's stored in graphite. So tin is not a rare earth per se. Um, but it's, um, you know, so this this method is in support of green energy in a sense, and it, and it would allow the continued generation of electricity from uh, from these solar fields uh, even at night and you know during weather and so forth. So um, there's certainly plenty more to do, but this goes a long way in making uh, the green energy initiatives at scale more reliable. So it's really good advance. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is a great discussion and a very important one. And I agree multi being multidisciplinary and looking at problems from a lot of different angles is really important. Um, so we don't create more problems instead of solving, you know, while solving one. <laughs> I agree, we, 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 we did that a lot in, in the past and, you know, uh, we should avoid that in the future and look at it in, <clears throat> from more angles. So I appreciate the comments and um, yeah, uh, 
yeah, this was the week. Uh, I think it was a wonderful week. Uh, we had really amazing guest speakers and discussions. So I appreciate everyone for coming and asking great questions and making our guest speakers feel welcome and appreciated. Really a big thanks to this wonderful team we have here that came together and loves science and loves this club. And, uh, you know, we couldn't do anything without this wonderful group. So thank you, everyone, especially uh, Serena, Victoria, Jamie, Dennis, Prism, Cecilia, Frank, uh, Eric, you know, any everyone that's not here also right now. Uh, this group wouldn't be the same and the guest speakers wouldn't be so happy to come and they I always get great feedback uh, what a wonderful group we are how much uh, they like coming how much fun they had how important the work is that we are doing um, a lot of speakers say that we are doing something really important for science uh, and we are doing great and so thank you for that because that's very important feedback also and uh, yeah I, I appreciate very much our group and what we do and our guest speakers also appreciate it and uh, yeah it's it's been wonderful so far so thank you everyone. Thank you so much for making this possible Katerina and bringing us all together we're following your light here so Thank you very much for that. Yeah, thank you so much for this. And Katarina, it's it's amazing. I'm incredibly grateful you've um, taken the time and energy to put this together and this team together. And uh, I'm really grateful for everyone that's taken part in your rooms. Um, learned a lot, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming and to support everyone also in the audience, uh, people that keep coming back and engaging. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's really important. We are doing really something, people, guest speakers said, we are doing something really special for science and really different and really important. And I appreciate everyone that supports, that comes here. Um, and uh, yeah, we yeah creating something really uh, unique and uh, different perspective on science. I think a more personal one because we have also create, especially Victoria um, started with this wonderful idea to interview in the beginning uh, about the personal path towards a career in science and how this project that we learn a lot came about. And it's such a unique uh, path every time uh, and really interesting to learn about. Uh, so yeah, thank you for doing that. I would have never by myself came up with that. So, you know, it's all a real team effort of everyone and also all of our friends in the audience because you know if nobody really shows up it's it's okay we still do what we do but it, it also makes the speakers feel that people are interested in coming and interested in their research what they do every day in their lab so uh, it's really it's really important so yeah i wanted 
to take the time to thank everyone for that and um yeah. yeah, thank you. And next week, go ahead. Oh, I, just, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say before, um, thank you. I, it sounds like you're going to launch into our what's coming up next week, which is super exciting. If I can just interject, um, you know, thank you so much for what you said. And I really believe that every one of us has our own unique, um, you know, attribute or whatever it is that we contribute. And and that 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 extends down to every single person who's in the audience, because it's so special for the guest speakers to come and see that people are here and really interested. And if there's one thing that I hope people take away, whether or not um, anyone's understanding the research or not, I mean, I have to go and, and you know do mad Googling before most of the talks um, to get up to some kind of speed. But, but I would hope that everybody takes away that um, just that they were in the presence of people following their own curiosity and that that's what people notice here is is really the enthusiasm toward following our innate curiosity because that's what gets every everyone to where they are who's coming here and presenting and and i think that's really the like the big unique flavor that that i sense in here is that we're really honoring um that curiosity and it's it's just so damn exciting to me so i hope i hope that that um people are picking up on that as well so thank you well what's happening well said victoria well said well yeah, and every single one person uh, here in this group and the audience, yeah, I totally agree, brings in something really special. Uh, Serena with her, I don't know, with her amazing knowledge of everything. Um, well, I'm just curious like, too. <laughs> just time. another curious character. <laughs> Dr. Shah, that is not here, she always has these amazing questions. Like, what's this? Like, it doesn't matter if it's a theory, simulation, how the um, black hole works, the newest ones, you know, <laughs> to ask a really interesting question and suggestion there from any medical or, you know, applied science projects. I, I don't know. Like, I'm really humbled to be in this group and then. Uh, Jamie, the amount he learned in such a short time and the questions he comes up with now, I mean, uh, not being a scientist in the lab, and, like, yeah, everyone here, uh, I'm sorry if I didn't point everyone out, it would take an hour, <laughs> what I find special about everyone here, but um, yeah, we all contribute a very different um, way of thinking, and that's what makes this uh, so great and special, and uh, everyone has a his own, her own way of enthusiasm, and um, yeah, it makes it, yeah, this this great group, and uh, I really appreciate it. So yeah, this is an incredibly safe space for curiosity. It's not shamed here. It's encouraged, and that's what I and I think everybody else, I would say, in the audience probably agree on that too right it's, it's good to be curious and if anything all of these amazing speakers have taught us be curious everything else will follow from that everything <laughs> right victoria yeah i would say so it's well put okay so in order to stay curious we have uh tomorrow dr hildebrand talking about sex differences in pain signaling processing 
which is really important because we know that um, pain med medicine doesn't work necessarily as well in females versus male. And um, uh, this is very important work um, that will in the future hopefully address this in pain treatment. Um, then Dr. Balderstone will talk about individualized targeting of uh, TMS treatment. Another, you know, especially for drug-resistant mental health disorders, uh, TMS has become uh, quite um, successful tools, um, new tools for treatment and um, doing this in a more individualized way would, would increase the success rate. And he, um, he published a study about that and we'll present it here. Then um, on Thursday, we have um, two rooms. Um, uh, one about uh, if massive gravitons dark are good dark matter candidate. And then in the evening, we'll have Dr. Moses, who um, published this amazing um, uh, BCI study where they uh, could decode speech and paralyze people uh, in order for them to communicate uh, with the environment. And so far, he will also present uh, non, not published new data for the first time from his lab. So um, we have to think about if we can, if we are allowed to, uh, to uh, different rules, we want to, to record the room or not. So we're kind of thinking about uh, what to do there. But um, yeah, but uh, so most likely um, the brand new, like the data that is published and really brand new data uh, shared here the first time in public. And then on Friday, we'll have uh, Dr. Lipora talking about the artificial 3D printed robot skin that feels uh, similarly to a human with more information processing, um, which is really interesting and I think also really important in different ways. So, um, yeah, that's the next week. Uh, if you know, nothing changes with rescheduling if something comes up. But so far, that's the plan for next week. It will be really exciting again. And uh, thank you all for coming. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Or if you are um, wherever you are, maybe Monday morning. Um, yeah, thank you, everyone. Thanks, thank everyone. You. Okay, we'll close the room and three, two, one, bye. Go science! <laughs>